0: This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com/be. That's IXL.com/be. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I'm your host, Jethro Jones, and you can follow me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. This episode is brought to you by John Cat Educational, a professional development publisher serving as the global leader in combining both research and practice in all materials. Find timely PD publications to support yourself and your faculty by visiting them online at us.johncatbookshop.com. Great instruction gets students engaged. TeachFX equips teachers with the instructional strategies and job embedded feedback they need to get students engaged in virtual or in person classes. Learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer at teachfx.com/slash transformative Hey, guess what? I've got a book coming out. How exciting is that? It's called School X. And it's all about helping you as a principal be a designer of your school and not just a manager. So I hope you'll check it out. You can download the free chapter at schoolx.me. So just go to schoolx.me to download the first free chapter. And once you get it, hit reply to the email and tell me what you think. Looking forward to sharing that with you. That's schoolx.me. Welcome to Transformative Principle. This is episode 367, and I'm excited to have on the podcast today Matthew Portell, who is a principal in Nashville, and he was actually just selected by Franklin Covey Education as a leader and meet community champion in recognition of his outstanding work, which is just fantastic. So welcome, Matthew, to Transformative Principal.
1: Thanks. I appreciate the ability to, to chat with you, especially on a Podcast name: The Transformative Principle. That makes me feel uh, great to be on.
0: <laughs> well, I appreciate that, and you, and uh, and you should feel great to be on because you came highly recommended as someone that I should definitely talk to. And uh, you know, we originally got connected because of a combination of your uh, trauma informed practices for school, but then you also do the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, the um, Leader and Me program at your school, and you know, in talking to you in just the the short time that we've been been chatting before we started recording, um, I'm just inspired by the the work that you do and and what you believe. So thank you for, for being here. People who listen to the podcast are already quite familiar with the idea of trauma-informed practices. We've talked a lot about that on this podcast. And so I want to take it a step further um, and talk more about the impact of social justice on trauma-informed practices and how those two intersect. And that's something that is incredibly popular and on the forefront of most people's minds right now. So can you talk to us about how those two things intersect?
1: Absolutely. I will openly say i am a white male so my perspective is is interesting to say the least and i think people find it ironic often that this conversation i'm having about social justice but i will tell you this conversation has been happening for years and anybody that that follows any of the work of my school will understand that we've been talking about understanding social justice for years especially within the context of how schools operate and what that looks like as a uh, unfortunate preparation for the, ju- the juvenile or adult justice systems. But what that looks like to me is understanding the impact um, of trauma as a whole and not uh, seeing trauma as an event, a specific event that necessarily had to happen to me at, in a specific period of time, and understanding the power of intergenerational transmission of trauma as well as the epigenetics. Now, I'm not a geneticist by any means, but I have dug into the power of epigenetics and understanding how that fits into racial trauma over the last, in our country, 400 years and seeing the systematic oppression of people of color. And I don't just say black, I say indigenous and brown, black, and, and many different racial contexts within this traumatic pieces. So it's understanding, I guess, over time the impact that racial trauma has from generation to generation and even to current day, right so as a as a principal of a school where my first year I was what I call principaling, the way I thought I was supposed to principal um, it kind of hit me in in mid year. I was actually at a talk of a neuroscientist and an assistant principal from d c and they were talking about these things called aces and trauma. immediately remember the what I call a paradigm shift, that shift from one way of thinking to another and how it hit me thinking that what we were doing at my school was compliance and quote unquote life preparation for kids because you just can't get away with these type of things in my mind is what i would tell myself was not what was in the best interest of kids and i know there's a lot of educators that may feel that way but they didn't they don't say it and i i openly say it because we have to learn from our mistakes and so In the context of a school and understanding the impact of racial trauma is really important. Um, It's really important in a local context um, because I know you mentioned that you were in Alaska. And I'm sure you understand the impact of indigenous people even in Alaska. And I have been able to spend just a bit of time in Alaska. But knowing that local context, what what it feels like to be in Nashville as an African-American or what it feels like when I was in Oklahoma to be a Native American. Right. So local context and historical context are two pieces of this trauma informed puzzle when it comes to racial trauma that we have to be talking about. It's uncomfortable. It's hard conversations, but it's conversations that we need to be having even all the way down to the school level.
0: Yeah, I hear you. And I think the the big piece for me from what, what you're saying there is this idea of of school as an enculturation mechanism to get people to leave behind their cultures and assimilate into the dominant culture. And i that's a part that I find really tragic because Native Alaskans, Native Americans, other indigenous people, they bring a strength to the table that all too often, historically, we have tried to eliminate and make them just like their white counterparts. You know, tragic things that happened in Alaska where and uh, Canada as well, where they would create schools that they would require families to send their kids to, and then their whole purpose of the school was to make the Indigenous peoples white people. And that kind of thing just blows my mind. But when that has been the case for so long, then that transmission of intergenerational trauma is It really makes a lot more sense and you don't think about it as just, you know, your normal run-of-the-mill school principal who hasn't thought about those kind of situations. And so how do we go from, you know, that has been the case. How do we honor people's ancestry and their heritage without, you know, without trying to make them like us or trying to make them into something different?
1: And within the context of my school, it really started with understanding implicit bias because, you know, it's that bias. Bias is a system in which our brain categorizes information for efficiency, right? So when we're pulling information, our brain sends, sends different information in categories so we can retrieve it quickly. But if we're not cognizant of it, it can really wreak havoc on the impact that we have in our role as an educator. And we may not even know it. So I think having conversations around bias is, is imperative is the first step, right? Bias in itself is only negative in nature if it's not noticed or reflected upon. And so we all have bias. It's just how our brains operate. So I think that's the first step is first understanding, wait, what bias do I as an individual possess, right? And how do we navigate our roles as educators understanding that we all possess bias that's number 1 2 i think what i did in my school and what a lot of people are currently doing evaluating why we do what we do you know why do and i we don't at my school but why do we have clip charts in elementary schools to publicly shame kids when they make a mistake why do we do that does it make sense right why do we have expulsory practices for kids, especially at high percentages of kids from color? Why are we suspending kids of color more, right? So it's really looking at the system and structures from a school perspective all the way back to a district and on, honestly, a systematic way and questioning and going, why are we doing this and thinking about how we can do things differently now? I identify myself as an unapologetic disruptor and I I coined the hashtag disruptors unite because if we just do what we've always done, we're always going to get the same results. And we know without doubt that our schools are designed to reflect the majority of our culture. And I think we have to be very cautious on how we proceed with the current procedures and policies that we have in our schools and our school districts.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really insightful comment, that our schools are designed to reflect the majority of our culture. And, and that really is what I was getting at, that our schools are designed to do that. And in some ways, that's exactly what we want. That's what we want our schools to do, is to teach kids how to be adults in our society. But when we're trying to take away from there what makes them them, when we're trying to take that away and strip it away, that's where I personally have a problem with that and I think a lot of other people do as well. And so that that idea of I you know let's let's shift to talking about student behavior for a minute. You you mentioned before that if we see behaving behavior as a lagging skill instead of a personal choice, that really changes how we approach that behavior. And so like behavior is one of those things where we're trying to teach them how to behave appropriately. And so, you know, if a kid is yelling and fighting all the time, that's not how we want appropriate adults to interact out in the world, even though many of them do. Uh, so what how do we how do we help make that change in behavior without then stripping away what makes them them?
1: So first, what I always say is by punishing kids to prepare them for a real world is skewed because the world is harsh and we, you know, they can't do this in the world. What I say is we need to prepare, we need to change the system, prepare for kids who need support. And so what I would say in that is if we live in a, with positive regard for our kids and understand the impact of trauma. And I say trauma in a big picture standpoint. I mean, big trauma. That means those abuses, whether physical, whether emotional, whether it's the incarceration of a loved one, whether it is divorce. You know, there's ACEs, which are those 10 indicators of trauma that many people know about. But there's also those things that we just Talked about, which is racial trauma, which is local context, which could be a variety. Poverty is something that impacts kids. When we put uh, the norms of ourselves onto kids that aren't in situations, or some of us have experienced trauma, so we may be putting norms on them because we've been in that space and we think this is what's best. We have to be cautious when you don't understand or we're not understanding the neurodevelopment and the and, and the development of a child who has or are experienced trauma. There's a reason that 85% of kids who are in foster care end up not in college. There's a reason why all of these systems and structures are made and a large group of students are failing. And so understanding the impact of trauma is first, right? And if we look at a kid as doing the best they can, um, and I say this all the time, for example, We had a child that came into my school that was on 100. And I mean, from the moment they walked in until the moment they left. Um, As we sat down with the parent, this child was adopted out of foster care. And this child had experienced things that you and I and most human beings could not comprehend, right? And punishing that child for his reactiveness would never change the behavior. And let's be honest behavioral standpoint in a school hasn't worked for a long time for many people. And I say that because as a principal, I'm one of them. Didn't start teaching until I was 26 26 years old. And it was due to my experience of school and thinking, one, I didn't have the capacity. And two, I was nothing but trouble. And many people have experienced that. So when we're looking at gifts of kids, and I love that you mentioned the leader in me, because It truly aligns to what I'm saying about seeing each individual child's capacity. It's focused on the strengths of a child and empowerment. So, in my school, we teach the seven habits of highly effective people. We focus on building kids' leadership skills because every kid possesses genius. If I focus solely on compliance and rules and every kid doing what we say they need to do, we're missing the mark on a lot of kids. And so, I think. Going back to what you asked about the lagging skills, when we understand development, when we understand neurodevelopment, when we understand the impact of trauma, and when we understand the the impact of strong, stable, nurturing relationships and the impact that can have on each individual child and relationships, that then has to become our priority. And that's where, at my school, that's where we are. We've learned that, that clip charts in the classroom are actually detrimental. But not just to the kid who's always clipping down, because I was the kid on purple or ivory or black or whatever the bottom was. I was that kid. But also for the community of kids. When public shaming becomes a norm in a school, it really can have major damage. And so when we look at kids as skill building, and we look at them with gaps in their skills, It takes that personal piece of they're doing it to me, they're doing it to the school, they're doing it to our classmates. It takes that away. And I can tell you over time, we have decreased our student office referrals by 96% over the last four years. Part of it isn't because the behaviors are always gone. It's because the teachers are looking at the child and their specific need, and we're catering our supports to those specific needs. We're not sending kids home. I didn't suspend a single kid last year. I only suspended one the year before and that was only so we could create a safety plan because we believe that it's our duty and and the power of our relationships that will shift the paradigm for a child.
0: John Cat Educational supports high-quality teaching and learning by providing publications that are research-based, practical and focused on the key topics proven essential in today's and tomorrow's schools. The latest John Capp publications include a book whose bold transformative ideas amaze and infuriate people around the world, according to one reviewer, a title from Global Leaders in Curriculum Planning, Practice, and Retrieval, one book that says stop talking and start doing with regard to teacher well-being, and much more. These books used by educators of all roles across North America and worldwide, amplify fresh, engaging voices with practical strategies to create transformative change. Learn more in our show notes at jethrojones.com podcast. During COVID, every teacher is a new teacher. That's why innovative school leaders are turning to TeachFX, whose professional learning platform doubles student engagement online or in person. To learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer, visit teachfx.com slash transformative principle Yeah that's that's absolutely true and it's um it's one of those things where where I wholly agree with you on on that point and that if we so my my faith perspective is that I believe that every single person is a child of God and they have the potential to become like God. And that is a, like, that's, that's a known quantity for me. And so when I look at kids and see their potential to become amazing, amazing human beings, that helps me change how I see them. They're not kids who are punks who are trying to do bad things. They are human beings who are learning how to get to that potential that is impossible to describe. And by having that approach, I I see these kids who come in the door who have had trauma, who have had bad experiences, who have had bad experiences at school, who have made really bad choices, not as, you know, kids who can never be any better, but more as kids who have limitless potential. And that's what I want to what I want to show for them and help and help them discover themselves. I mean if you can discover for yourself the potential that you have, then it's incredible what you can do with your life. And there's there's pretty much nothing that can stand in your way, which I think is just incredibly amazing.
1: That resonates with me a lot because you know I I, I speak I speak internationally. I speak around the country. And one of the things that I say when I speak is the biggest irony of me speaking to people is my whole educational career, I was told to be quiet and that I didn't have anything to say. And that if just if someone would have recognized that potential, not that I wouldn't be anywhere that I am now, but it's like, wow, what an experience school could have been. And I think that's true. And here's the fact. Every kid possesses greatness and every kid has unique gifts. And that's a fact. And, and it doesn't matter if they've experienced trauma or they have never experienced trauma. And at school, it's our goal and our and our duty to pull that out of kids. And what says that less than when a kid makes a mistake? And I, I can tell you, we've had some very challenging kids. Matter of fact, we have a large population of kids. With, we don't even call them challenges. To be honest, we call them opportunities. And to say you have to go home because you made this mistake or you responded in this way because right now I know that you're literally sleeping in a car. All that does is continue that cycle of low self-worth and self-doubt. And um, and then what I always hear is, well, what about the other kids? You know, kids deserve. And I, I hear that. But I can also tell you that it's not our kids that want to see other kids punished or our kids that are wanting other kids. You know, when we ask them, because we do use a restorative process and a true one where every kid has a voice. And and if the kid was hit, that kid has a voice in the conversation, just like the child who may have hit. And it's done on a private level in a small area. The kids rarely, and I mean, when I say rarely, I mean 95% want that other kid punished. What we hear and what we see and what we feel is the kids want that child to get the quote unquote help, right? And so even in from a from a, a high school standpoint, at my school district, they brought high school kids into our principal meeting. Mind you, we have 178 schools in my district and almost 90,000 students. And as we sit down with these high school students, we ask some of these questions. What do you feel needs to happen with kids who um, you know, aren't complying with the rules or aren't, and not one kid that we talked to wanted kids to be put out of school. It's just really interesting to me that we don't listen to our kids' voices very often.
0: Right, and and listening to our kids' voices is so important because they can give us the the insight that we honestly don't have, and and what I appreciate about that that anecdote about that is that that happens all over the place. Anytime you take the time to listen to kids say what should happen in those situations, they almost never say the kid should be kicked out of school because they don't they don't want to see that kid out of school. Now sometimes they'll say, I'm afraid when that kid is around, especially with younger kids. But then when you get down to it and you ask them, well why are you afraid? Because that that kid hurts other kids. And What would you do if that happened to you? Well, I would go find an adult and they would help me. And so do you think that that kid is a bad person because they hurt people? Sometimes they'll say yes, but more often than not, they'll say, no, they're just making a bad choice. And it's like, whoa, from the mouth of babes. (laughs) like That's crazy. They totally get it. They don't think the kid is bad because they're doing something bad. They think the kid, they see that potential that that student has even when we adults can't see it. And I think you're spot on about that idea that that it's typically the adults who want those kids out of the school. And so how do you have these conversations with adults to where they can start saying it's okay that we're not suspending kids? Because for me personally that's been a huge challenge in every school that I've been a principal in. Well
1: oh, I think honestly it takes it takes time, to be quite honest. And it takes a leadership team to take a firm stance. But I think before all of that has to happen, you have to build the why. Why aren't we suspending? Here's what I learned early on when we began this transformation of my school is that teachers, just like kids, were doing the best they could, right? That, that teachers were using the minimal tools in their toolbox to handle the students who had the most opportunity for growth. And so in the same regard as our kids, I try to operate in the same regard for our teachers. And so what we started with was we built the why. Why do some students bring this baggage? What does it look like? What is the impact? What's the neurodevelopment? What is de-escalation? And I think you know as well as I do, there's a lot of schools that don't even talk about how to de-escalate a child verbally, right? Or or non-verbally. And I think we're doing a disservice to our educators. We're not providing them this platform and and information when it comes to here's how to de-escalate a child. Then what I learned is in my role as a principal, I have to support the adults in my building as much, if not more than I have to support the children. Because I have a quote that is surfaced all around uh, social media that I said in a talk that I gave, and it was an escalated adult cannot de-escalate an escalated child, right? So when we have extremely intense and stressed out adults, that transcends directly to our kids. When we have unempathetic principles or um, unempathetic leadership for our educators, that transcends sometimes down to our kids. And so I think it starts with building their capacity of understanding why it doesn't work. I have a school where 85 percent of my kids are black, brown. And so understanding the impact that disproportionality has on on my students when it comes to suspension and expulsion, right? So giving them all of the information. Now, I can honestly say that once that has happened, if educators choose not to make an adjustment, to me, it borders on malpractice. Because now you've given, been given information that ex, ex, describes all of these things, a need to adjust the systems and structures, and then building their capacity to do so by support. So let me give you an example of what I mean by support. My school has something called a tap-in and tap-out strategy, where um, when a teacher is in a situation and they become escalated, whether it's a dis- dysregulated student, whether it's I something happened in my personal life and I'm in a situation in my classroom and I'm escalated, they can go on to our, our messaging system, which is an app that our school utilizes, and say, I need to tap out. At any given point, any adult in my building will They'll go straight to that person's room. An adult will go with with the teacher if they want one, and the other will stay in the room. Now, why is that? Because so many educators get caught in these situations where they become escalated and they don't have an out. And it's not mentally safe. It's not cognitively safe. It's just a really bad situation that most educators are just told to deal with it. And so that strategy came out again of going, educators have to be supported. We do something at my school called the happy teacher revolution, where every month the teachers get in a circle and they process, they affirm each other and they affirm themselves. And so these processes are really what we dig down into what what now is so popularly called self-care, which sometimes gets mixed up with going and getting a massage and drinking a glass of wine. Which is perfectly fine, but when we talk about self care, it has to go deeper than that. And so it's a process, right? And it's a long process, but it's one that, as all educators, we need to be we need to be on this journey.
0: Yeah, I, I really like that tap in tap out strategy, and what a better way to deal with it than what I experienced in my first administrative position? That was called the Owl Squad, which was basically a kid is totally escalated and. They would say, freaking out, and we need help to contain this kid when, like you said, an escalated adult cannot de-escalate an escalated child. That's what was happening, is the adult was too escalated to be able to manage the situation anymore. And instead of asking for help with their own mental health and self-care, they said, it's the child's fault. And, And when I was in that school, I said, So the culture was, when when that happens, then you run to that classroom, the people on the OWL squad run, which was the principal, assistant principal, and the behavior coach. They run to that classroom and provide support to the teacher. And... I said, you know, I am not going to do that anymore. If anybody sees me running, it's going to be because I'm in a race. It's not going to be because I'm going to get a, a kid who is just in a tough situation from a teacher who is also in a tough situation. And and that's that's the reality. And I think that that tap in, tap out strategy is so powerful because it, it normalizes and makes it okay to say, I've had enough and we can get there. And what I felt like as the principal was that I was never allowed to have enough and that other people could have enough and dump their problems on me, but that I couldn't do that as a principal myself because there's nobody for me to give that to. And what tap in, tap out strategy says, even the principal can be tapped out and it's okay. And that's part of us dealing with the people that we deal with, you know, and there's nothing wrong with it. We can just say, I'm done. I need to step back. And then somebody else can come in and, and work the situation. And what we found was that whenever we could get a teacher out of that situation, they could calm down and they would want that kid to come back in and have a good thing, but they couldn't do it in the moment. You know, it was too much for them to do it in the moment. So gosh, I just, I love that strategy. I wish I would have known that. I don't know, like 10 years ago, that would have helped.
1: Well, and I tell you too, it, it. When we have a saying, it's okay not to be okay, but it's not okay to to not have support. And, and I'll even tell you, the culture of my school is in such a place where I was in our library, and there was a very escalated child. And why I responded to this child, I'll never know, because I knew I was a trigger for him. When he, would, when he would see me come in, not that I did anything, but just me being the principal would send him through the roof. And I went into the library. He completely escalated. He had a wooden spear that he drew back to throw at me. And I I immediately was triggered and I escalated. And my librarian walked up to me in the kindest voice and said, you need to leave now. Thank you. I have it from here. And I knew exactly what she was telling me. Like, "Uh uh-uh, you're escalated. You've got to go. Now, that takes a ton of risk and vulnerability on her part. And it also takes vulnerability on my part as the school leader. And I had to go and thank her later because she recognized I wasn't in a good space and stepped in. And I think that's when you know your school culture is making a major shift. I also will say when it comes to vulnerability, I'm very vulnerable with my staff. Um, and I think that's a quality of leadership. So many people are terrified of when saying, and I've stood in front of my staff and said, I'm not okay right now. And let me explain to you why. And I can tell you, they wrap themselves around me just as my team does with, with individual teachers. And so some people aren't willing to take that risk because they think leadership you know, is a, is a space in which we're supposed to bear all of the weight. And I've learned in my short six years as a principal, I can't handle that weight. It's just way too much. And so having a team that surrounds us, that allows us to be vulnerable and also ask for support is imperative.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And kudos to to you for setting up a culture like that in your school. Kudos to that librarian for noticing when things are happening. That's so, so powerful. And, and, and it really does make a difference. So the last question I ask, Matthew, is what is one thing that a principal can do this week to be a transformative principal like you?
1: I think what it would be is it comes down to on, on the strength finder, it's Activator, right? And I think what I would encourage principals is don't wait for somebody else to do it or try it. Whatever that is in your space, and, and Lord knows right now, we all have a ton of opportunity to try something new, given the status of many of our schools. And what I would say is take that activator, try it, and if it doesn't work, it's okay. And so what I, I challenge all all leaders is to step in that space of vulnerability And try something that would be in the best interest of your students, your families and your teachers and stand there in confidence and support them, all of them through whatever decision you make. Because let's be honest right now, it is a hard time to be an educator and it is definitely a very challenging time to be a principal.
0: Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Before we go, can you talk a little bit about your Trauma-Informed Educators Network Facebook group and uh, your podcast that came out of that as well?
1: Sure. So I guess it's been a couple of years ago. I started a Facebook group in hopes of creating a connection for educators around understanding and becoming trauma-informed, not knowing that it would grow to what now is 27,000, almost 27,000 people. And it is called the Trauma-Informed Educators Network. Out of that, I learned that I love learning from people. So I started a podcast in September of 2019 called the Trauma-Informed Educators Network Podcast. I do not have anywhere near your episode number. I was jealous when I heard on 357, but I have been able to speak to some uh, experts in the field which include Dr. Bruce Perry, Dr. Ross Green, Dr. Laurie DeSaltis. I mean, there's been a lot. So there's a lot of information. And then out of that, we also have the Trauma-Informed Edu- Educators Network Conference, which unfortunately we had to suspend this year, but we will be back in July of 2021. It's a small little conference of 200 people. We have what call what's called home groups. So you stick with the same group of people and process all of the learning that you have four times throughout two days. Everybody leaves with connections and inspired. It's pretty. It, it's it's a pretty awesome little experience.
0: Yeah, well, that is very cool. So I definitely joined the group when I uh, found out about it, and I uh, invite everybody else to join also and get an idea about uh, the podcast and listen to that as well. And links to those are in the show notes at com slash podcast slash episode 367. So thank you again, Matthew, for being part of Transformative Principle, and I appreciate you taking the time to, to share your wisdom with us today.
1: I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you.
0: Thank you to our valued partner, John Cat Educational. If you are a leader looking to make transformative change by providing yourself and your leader's and teachers with professional development that is research-based and rigorous yet easy to digest and full of practical strategies check out the latest publications from John Cat visit us.johncatbookshop.com to find information on bulk orders or learn much more in our show notes you can also use the code transformative to save a bundle at us.johncatbookshop.com School principals across the country are using TeachFX's virtual PD and job-embedded feedback to boost student engagement during COVID. With TeachFX, teachers get eight times more feedback and generate 144% more student engagement on average in a school year with no additional work for school leaders or teachers. To learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer, visit teachfx.com transformativeprincipal